Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Hi, Joshua here, producer for Living Wealthy Radio. Today we're talking with a world-renowned economist about the dangers of trusting the financial system in this country. Democrats and Republicans continue selling us down the river. The Fed is running roughshod over our economy, and we just keep getting poorer. What I like about this talk is how Teresa and her guest simplify the problem as well as the solution. The fact is, the system is really set up to rob us of our spending power so that we're always dependent on the banks and whatever Wall Street happens to be doing at the moment. And the bank-on-yourself method following the infinite banking concept just really sidesteps all of this and puts the power back in our hands. We cannot trust conventional wisdom when it comes to our money or our financial futures. This talk will help you better understand how to return to sound financial principles that you just don't hear about anymore. Today's enriching fact of the day is that you can be more creative and brilliant by lightening up and not trying so hard. We all find ourselves stumped or perplexed about problems throughout life. Even on a daily basis, we encounter tricky situations that require problem-solving and creativity. If only we could have more aha moments and train our brains to feed us genius, outside-the-box solutions. Well, actually we can, but it requires not trying so hard. Psychologists have discovered that the human brain does better when not hung up on a particular task or problem. Setting it aside and thinking about other things gives the brain much-needed bandwidth to come up with a clever solution. When we're super focused on just one thing, we kind of get a mental tunnel vision, so to speak, that really eliminates peripheral elements that we have to work with. See, the brain is not linear. Creative problem solving doesn't come from adding A to B to C. It's really far more interconnected than that. And when you stop focusing so hard on a problem, it allows you to be more present in your environment. And your environment, in turn, often provides cues and hints at how to solve your problem in the background, subconsciously. Relaxing and not trying so hard frees up other thoughts your focus may have been suppressing. Our brains are masters at taking seemingly unrelated thoughts and concepts and weaving them into creative solutions and finding patterns. That's why we often experience eureka moments and flashes of creativity when we're lying in bed or going for a walk. A wandering mind is kind of a lineup of loose ends and thoughts and ideas, and our ability to detach and relax allows us to then connect these things, these loose ends and patterns, and come up with really clever outside-the-box solutions we wouldn't have otherwise noticed. So our brains are working on the problem in the background and using the thoughts we allow to flow freely. Today's enriching fact gives us the secret to clever problem-solving and provoking more genius moments. Relax. Go for a walk. Let your mind wander. You might be amazed at what it finds. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. If you have children, I'm sure you've already thought about how expensive college is going to be. And navigating the financial aid process is a nightmare all in itself, right? Do you have everything lined up yet? Or are you kind of biting your nails, just hoping it all works out? Well, don't worry. There's a much better way to line up college funding and get the paperwork sorted out and grow a lasting investment beyond school years. Go College Planning by Living Wealthy Financial is an amazing outside-the-box service that gives you full control of the process and incredible access to a growing investment you can use for college, trade school, or even to pursue an entrepreneurial vision. You'll receive strategic information to position your child for the school of their choice and help with applications and FAFSA forms, and also achieve an ongoing source of funding that grows even as you pull from it to pay for college. This funding is sheltered from financial aid formulas, so it will never count against you, and it will help reduce your family's out-of-pocket cost so that you can maximize your potential financial aid award. 
Plus, it's not linked to the markets. And there are no penalties for not using the funds for school. In fact, it makes a great backup retirement plan. Go College Planning can be reached at 1-800-382-0830. If you're ready to secure your child's future and build a lasting investment for the future with complete access whenever you need it, call 1-800-382-0830. Put this amazing solution to work for you. Joining us today is Dr. Robert P. Murphy, a professor and PhD of economics and the author of Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. Don't go away. All of a sudden, you shut down. You're like, oh, no, this is economics and this is all sorts of stuff I have no interest in. Robert Murphy is known to make a very dry subject really, really interesting. He is a senior fellow with the Mises Institute and host of the Bob Murphy Show. And he is joining us today to shed light on some modern economic myths, help us understand sound economic principles for improving our future, and how he's become a fan, a huge fan of specially designed whole life insurance. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Dr. Murphy. Thanks for having me, Teresa. Glad to be here. My pleasure. So, how did you come to be in economics? You're a really funny guy. You've got a lot of personality, right? How did you come become interested in economics? It, well, I appreciate that. And yes, it is true that after I give a talk, people will come and say, "For an economist, you're really funny," which is kind of a backhanded compliment. But uh, it was I was in. Uh, Junior high, and my, my dad was listening to Rush Limbaugh, and, and I started getting into conservative libertarian politics. And then just the more I started reading like from people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, you know, they would have op-eds in the newspaper, just talking about like why what rent control was bad or minimum wage laws would cause unemployment among teenagers, things like that. So the government efforts to help people actually could backfire and do the exact opposite. And just once I started reading that literature, I was fascinated by it and how the market economy, you know, certainly was a, a self-regulating thing. And, uh, you know, you, you go to the supermarket and all these products are on the shelves and there's no person or group that's in charge of all that. It kind of just happens spontaneously and you take it for granted. And it's just a, a fascinating subject area that I just, the more I read, the more I wanted to do that. And that's, that's kind of how I went into that path. So what have you found to be like, some of the most common economic myths play, plaguing our society today. Like you hear these myths and, and you as Dr. Murphy say, oh my gosh, like people are so clueless. That's so wrong. Sure. Um, so some of them, one example is uh, a lot of Americans at least, they think that it was the free market that gave us the Great Depression and that Herbert Hoover sat back and did nothing and actually, the opposite is, is true, that Herbert Hoover, after the stock market crash in 29, that was the most um, interventionist, uh, he was the most interventionist president in U.S. history at that point, at least in peacetime, and he, you know, he said so in his memoirs, and his, Hoover was trying to defend his, his reputation, and he's listing all the things that he did, and it's true, it's been, even one of FDR's lieutenants later admitted in the late 30s that everything they did in the New Deal was just an elaboration or extension of stuff that Herbert Hoover had done, you know, in his term in office. So th- th- that's one of the main um, things I think most Americans don't realize. Um, also, there's myths about uh, that there was deregulation in the in the late 90s, and that's what gave us the housing boom and bust. And again, if you go look at that stuff, it was m- very mild tweaks to the financial system, and all of the things that occurred in the lending markets you know, during the housing bubble years, they they would have been legal with the regulatory framework before the changes in the late 90s. You know, that doesn't really explain why banks did that sort of thing. Um, I think you know, another huge myth that people have is the idea that the Federal Reserve promotes financial stability. If you just look at a basic timeline, the Federal Reserve came in in 1913, so the Great Depression happened on the Fed's watch. The great, you know, the, the, the great recession, the financial crisis happened on the Fed's watch, and so it's 
what would the world have to look like in order for people to realize that intervention and money and banking by the government is a bad idea? Well, um, you know, it used to be that people didn't know that the Federal Reserve was private, wasn't a government agency. And I would say that that was one of the most common myths before. But today, I think more and more people realize the Federal Reserve is private and it's not federal. Right, yeah. The, the joke we say is like the Federal Reserve is neither federal nor reserve discussed. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's this weird sort of legal status. So yes, the, the, the Federal Reserve, strictly speaking, is a, is a corporation with shareholders. And so it's the major uh, banks in the country are like the stockholders of the Federal Reserve, and it literally pays them dividends. You know, the Fed, in terms of, you know, buys assets, it earns income off of them, it has expenses, and then with its net accounting profit every year, it pays dividends to its shareholders, and then whatever's left is remit to the Treasury. And so, I, you know, that, if you think about how weird that is, because the Fed, of course, is the primary regulator of the banks, that would be as if, like, the big pharmaceutical companies owned the FDA. They literally owned it, and it paid dividends them you know so i think people could see there'd be a huge conflict of interest there so likewise here you know when it comes to the banks the thing that regulates them they literally own legally on the other hand the government does have a lot of say in what the fed is because of course all of its leadership is a well not all of it but like the chairman and other key positions are nominated by the president of the united states you know installed there through the federal government so it's not like the president gets to pick who the CEO of Walmart is, right? So the Fed, it's not any old government agency like the EPA or the IRS. But on the other hand, it's not purely private either. It's this weird hybrid that I think is the worst of all worlds, where it intervenes in the, in the banking system and it has the ability to create a cartel of the commercial bank, you know, it restricts competition and it monopolizes the uh, control of, of the money supply. And that's bad. But on, the, but on the other hand, it's not even like people have democratic control over what it does. But the Fed is largely, or in an important way, independent of congressional oversight. So just to give you one quick example, Teresa, at the, remember back in 2008, you know, the financial crisis happened in the fall, and then the Fed began doing unprecedented interventions, like setting up all these liquidity programs. And so Congress actually had a hearing in December of 2008, and they called Ben Bernanke before them, and they said, we understand, we're, you know, we're seeing all the reports, you're lending billions upon billions of dollars to financial institutions because, you know, the, their uh, balance sheets are in trouble, they're holding all these toxic mortgages and so forth. We're not, we're not second-guessing you, we're not, we're not saying you can't do it, but can you at least tell us who you're lending all these billions of dollars to, just so we have some idea of what you're doing. And Bernanke said, no, I can't tell you the recipients of these loans because then the public would short their stock and that would defeat the purpose of the bailout program. So the, the Fed was creating billions of dollars in lending amounts to institutions and wasn't even telling Congress who they were making the loans to, let alone getting permission. So I mean, that just kind of shows you how insane, I would say, the system is that we have right now where we've got this entity that can create hundreds of billions of dollars out of thin air with no check, and they don't even have to tell Congress who's getting the money. It is crazy. It is insane. And and I, I'm sorry, I have to correct you on something, though. You said that it would be analogous to, like, the pharmaceutical industry owning the FDA. Well, I actually think they do, right? I think they've got the FDA in their back pocket um, completely and totally. It's, it's like there's supposed to be this um, you would think there would be this arm's length, right, um, between the Federal Reserve and the banks, or at the very least, they should be about protecting the economy. But if the shareholders of a corporation, right, what what is the purpose of a corporation to increase shareholder value? Isn't that a conflict to what the Federal Reserve states their position is completely and totally. They're really about increasing shareholder value, not about protecting the economy and not about protecting the government or the United yeah, States. Great point. Yeah. Right. So yeah, let me just clarify. So 
you're right. If, if you say to you know, ask me, hey, uh, <laughs> Bob, do you think the FDA is uh, you know standing aside the pharmaceutical industry and regulating them in the interest of the public, you know, to provide safety and so forth? I would say no. I don't think you know. And I've I've done some research. I've you know, written a book. Part of it, they cover some of this stuff, and I think the FDA is corrupt, and there's especially like with Vioxx and so on. There's all kinds of evidence that if the FDA approves a drug, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change its mind later, no matter what the evidence is, and, and you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that. So I agree with you, but I'm saying at least on paper, the FDA is a government agency staffed by people, you know, who are not on the payroll. But you know, it's more, Got more it. kids. And I was tongue in cheek. I want you to know I was tongue in cheek when I said correcting you, right? (laughs) And I know that I want to make sure sure your listeners realize that I'm not speaking metaphorically. I'm not saying like, oh, it says this, the banks own the Fed. I'm saying they literally, if you go to Wikipedia, it will tell you the banks literally own the Fed. (laughs) It's so naked that it's amazing that, you know, this is the system we have. Um, So you're right. It's, just to give a quick example of how the Federal Reserve policies are are not in the public interest and are clearly you know catering to the the big banks. Uh, in 2008, when again the financial crisis, so remember there was the PARP program, the Troubled Asset Release Program, which, you know, that was what the bailout was, um, and the Federal Reserve began all these unprecedented liquidity injection programs. And the way this was all justified and sold to the public at the time, it was people like, remember, Hank Paulson and you know, George Bush was the president. And they were explaining to the American people, look, we don't want bailing out these fat cats, but we have to bail out Wall Street in order to keep credit flowing the Main Street. Like that was the, the rationale. Otherwise, ATMs will stop working and blah, blah, blah. So that was the way they justified it. But at the same time, they started doing all that. In October of 2008, the Fed began a new program of what's called paying interest on reserves. And so what that meant was the Federal Reserve said to the commercial banks, if you keep your reserves parked here at the Fed instead of making new loans to your customers, we'll pay you interest on that. So the Fed began paying banks to not make loans for regular people. This was right at the time when they were saying we need to keep credit flowing. So that's you know, a clear-cut example of how this was not something designed to help people Another way of saying it, too, is the way these so-called bailouts work is they went into secondary markets and bought the mortgage-backed securities. And, they, they again, they justified it by saying, well, we got a problem with the housing market. They could have just, you know, for the same amount of money, they could have gone out and started rescuing homeowners who were underwater. But they didn't do that. But, you know, they were fine to sit back and let individual homeowners get foreclosed on. It's where the interventions happened was to rescue institutional investors, money managers and stuff, and they bought all these so-called toxic assets. So again, it, it, I think it just shows you that the, you know, the real reason, you know, I, mean, I think everybody listening to your show you know, has common sense and wisdom and knows this to be the case, but these, these programs were helping the well-to-do recover from their foolish financial decisions. They weren't really bailing out the little bit. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. And with what money did they use to bail out those banks? So um, if, we're, if we're talking about Congress and the and FARC, you know, trouble after the lease for people, at least on paper, the federal government needs to issue more bonds in order to spend the money, right? So they, they you know, behave like a corporation. But then on the flip side, the Federal Reserve began all these quantitative easing programs. So the Federal Reserve... There, there is no check on it. Ever since the, you know, the 70s, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, or the last vestiges of the gold standard, there's nothing stopping the Fed from creating more money. So when the Fed wants to buy assets or you know, lend money to banks and so on, there's, it's just an accounting operation electronically. There's no constraint. Congress, in order to spend money, technically needs to borrow it, but if the Fed's there as a backstop doing QE, it makes it easy for... Congress to borrow money because private lenders know they can just sell their bonds over to the Fed. So ultimately, I would say what drove all that was the Fed's ability to create dollars electronically with no real check. Well, let's get political for just a few minutes. What do you think the impact would be on some of the more popular Democratic proposals that they have on our economy, proposals like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal? 
Sure. So, um, I mean, if you look at Medicare, even just right now, you know, if it's restricted to the, the elderly, it, that's the thing that's driving when people talk about unfunded entitlement spending or, you know, we have to reform entitlement, unfunded liabilities. That, that's what they're talking about. I mean, Social Security is in the hole, but that's peanuts compared to Medicare. It, it, to the tune of, you know, depending on which actuaries you consult, like $30 trillion or so, like in terms of negative present value, right? So if, if they're saying we want to expand that program for the whole country, you mean, to me, that just shows how fiscally irresponsible that, that would be. Like, they could just, they, you can't pay for it. Um, as far as the Green New Deal, standard estimates of this are showing it could cost up like $30 trillion, right? And yeah, it depends on some of this stuff, like how literally do you take them? But some of these proposals that they want to retrofit just about every building in the country, you know, to try to switch over to having the electricity sector not have any net emissions of carbon dioxide by, depending on which estimates you look at 2030, for example. I mean, a lot of this stuff, some of it is literally impossible. And if they did try to achieve it, you know, even just to get close to it, again, it would cost trillions of dollars. So I suppose the bright side is I don't think anyone would actually try to implement these things because they're so ludicrous. But on the other hand, it's sort of like a bidding war with Democratic contenders right now. I'll just keep saying more and more absurd things because that's what their base wants to hear. Like, just, I mean, I think, I don't know if you watched it, but recently one of them, you know, they're asked, how are you going to pay for this? And I think it was Elizabeth Warren, but I could even get them mixed up, said, oh, that's a Republican talking point. So, so now we've gotten to the point in the debate where to say, how are you going to pay for these programs? Is, is deemed to be a partisan talking point as, as opposed to like an obvious question that any adult would ask. Pretty crazy. Well, what about uh, the Republicans? Are their policies any sounder for our economy? Policies like suspending the debt ceiling or further lowering the interest rates. There's been a lot of talk about that recently. Right. So I was okay with, um, you know, the, the corporate income tax reduction you know, tied with a, a more modest personal income tax reduction. I'm, I'm always, you know, for any tax stuff anywhere, it's just, I think they should have been matched by spending cuts, right? So to me, the, the Trump administration, they, they pushed through that very aggressive tax policy, which I would have been okay with, but then they, they not only failed to cut spending, but they increased spending. So I think that's going to discredit. And so it's tough for conservative Republicans the next time there's a Democrat in the White House to pose the defender of you know, a balanced budget and fiscal uh, rectitude when when they have power, you know, they let spending explode. And it's not just the Trump administration. When George W. Bush was the president and he had both houses, you know, they also spending and they had Medicare Part D and all that stuff. So unfortunately, Republicans are really good on spending restraint when they're not in the White House. Um, also, as, as far as their policies, what Trump is doing with this trade war, I, I think is silly. And, and I know some people will defend it and say he's just, you know, he's playing a, a game of chicken and ultimately he's trying to have lower tariffs all around and, you know, have the foreign markets get open. And okay, if that's what he does, you know, that'd be a good thing. But the way Trump explains what he's doing on Twitter he sure makes it sound like he doesn't understand basic economics, the way he talks about trade deficits and so on. So that's, I think, you know, very uh, indefensible, and, and Republicans are supposed to be good on economics. Um, and, it's, and yeah, with the debt ceiling and all that stuff, let me just say this, that whenever Republicans talk about, hey, we need to, you know, some of them talk about, we need to get a balanced budget amendment and get spending into Republicans could automatically get a balanced budget if they would stop voting to increase the debt ceiling, right? Because if there's an absolute cap on the total outstanding amount of debt, once you reach that ceiling, necessarily going forward, you would have to have a balanced budget because if you didn't, then the debt would increase, right? So we don't have to have a constitutional amendment. It just all, all Republicans would have to do is stop approving an increase in the debt ceiling and automatically you got to balance the budget and yet they don't do that. So to me, that just again shows that it's politics that, and, and, and why? Because the public likes spending and they don't like taxes. It's a pretty, pretty simple explanation for why deficits 
are hard to get under control even in times of prosperity because they're painful. They're, un- they're unpopular politically. And so people in office would rather do what makes the, the voters happy rather than, you know, have them eat their broccoli and do the responsible thing. Well, you know, you hear about some some of the crazy spending, right? Like all the billions and billions and billions of dollars we give to our enemies and um, some of the wars that we're involved with, um, not necessarily declared wars, but, you know, we're, we are all over the country and just really hundreds of billions of dollars. And if we just spent some of that, uh, stop spending on that and spend some of that on our infrastructure and on helping people right here in our country, uh, I don't know. I think we'd get a lot more bang for our buck, but what do I know? I, I think, you know, you and I are probably even thinking that, but yes, I am an opponent of a lot of what happens under, under so-called U.S. foreign policy. But, he, but you know, even if, if, if someone disagrees and they're, and they're off in terms of the military, okay, but like you say, we should pay for it, right? And, it's, and there's other ways to pay for it, right? So it's a, a lot of what the federal government does right now in terms of spending money is just ludicrous. Another thing, too, is that the federal government is sitting on all sorts of assets, that, you know, things like oil reserves. I mean, there's a lot of, and to his credit, President Trump has done a lot more than you and I was expecting him to do in terms of loosening up some of these regulations. But like in terms of just all the mineral resources that the federal government controls on and offshore that right now it's illegal for companies to develop, you know, for various reasons. And so, I mean, there's a lot of things like that where it's really, when you start adding up just how much potential output and productivity is, is squandered or not taken advantage of because of nonsensical federal regulations and policies, it's really staggering. It is. It's insane. I do love, and this is something that I think is very timely, I do love the fact that we are now the number one exporters for oil and we are energy independent. Uh, whether, I don't know, I know enough to agree with the practices and how they're doing it, but just that fact, right, is I think a, a big, big deal in getting us on track from a financial perspective instead of being dependent on, you know, a very uh, chaotic area of the world for our energy. So kudos to uh, to Trump for that. Yeah, and, and the big thing there, yes, is the, the so-called fracking boom. And again, this is something that people didn't see. I mean, I, I can remember growing up when, Americans were lectured and browbeaten, like, hey, you got to switch over to electric vehicles. We need to wean ourselves from our dependence on oil and so on. And if somebody had said in, 19, in the late 1990s, oh, pretty soon the U.S. is going to lead, you know, lead the world in oil production and we're going to produce more and be, you know, that, that was even last at the senior break. Yet that's what happened. And another thing, too, going along with that, because of the, the boom in natural gas production, the U.S. has reduced its carbon dioxide emissions way more than, you know, the average country in Europe, for example. And again, it's not because of some government policy, but just because natural gas is less carbon intensive than coal. And so natural gas prices came down, you know, electricity producers just switched over to the market forces. So again, it's just showing the, you know, the, the, the creative power of markets and how government planning doesn't work. Agreed. Totally. If only they'd listen to us, right? We'd solve all the world's problems. (laughs) But they're not. But the one problem I know I can help people with, and you've become a huge advocate of, is the specially designed whole life policy um, known in some circles as the infinite banking concept, bank on yourself. How the heck did you get involved with being an advocate, like a very uh, visible, open advocate of this type of concept? Well, sure. Great question. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm not from the life insurance sector by any stretch. I was an academic economist, a you know, college professor. I had moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and one day out of the blue, I got an email from this guy, Carlos Lara, who was using a study guide I had written to one of the Austrian economists because he was, Carl was working on a presentation and he was just using my book to make sure he was getting his, his facts right. Then he had seen on the back of the book that I lived in Nashville and so he, so I you know, went over to his house for coffee 
And then as I got to know him better, he hands me this book called Becoming Your Own Banker by some guy, Nelson Nash. And he said, hey, this, you know, this is, I really enjoyed this, but I'm curious what your take is on it. And I read it, and Teresa, I got to confess, in the beginning, and I had told Nelson, uh, he's no longer with us, but when he was, I, I told him this, but he, would, you know, <laughs> he wouldn't be offended by it if he thinks it's funny. The first time I read his book, I said, this sounds like a great guy, but there's like five things wrong with it, a basic mistake, his whole approach. And then the more I studied it, I was like, oh, okay, I misunderstood that one book. Now there's four things wrong with it. And then I studied it more, oh, okay, now I can restate. There's three things. And then by the time the last one, I realized that I was wrong. Then I was thinking, how come not everyone's not doing this? This is so obvious. Right? So it was one of those things where it went from to me being obviously wrong to being self-evident correctly. I was wondering how come you know, this isn't more famous. So yeah, that was and it was partly that I didn't understand how whole life insurance worked. I think that's probably the stumbling block for a lot of people when they first hear this is they really don't understand like, what do you mean cash value, you know, because they're thinking in terms of a term like insurance policy where, you know, there's not like a cash value, it's just a, you know, you pay a fee in order to have the coverage and that's it. Um, so I, I think that was part of the issue, which is I didn't understand the mechanics of it. And then once I did, then Nelson's writing made more sense than this idea of, oh, yeah, keep your wealth shielded from Wall Street and the commercial banking sector and you know, you're not relying on outside people and you got this thing building up here, this time-tested, very conservative financial product is, is so versatile. It, it, it really is it, pretty straightforward. But I think now the difficulty when I try to explain to some of my colleagues, it's so easy and simple that like, they don't like it because they want it to be more complicated. Like, well, that, you know, that, that's so straightforward. There's got to be something more to it than that. Well, do you get asked often about the life insurance sector being safe? I, I would I would think that would be like the first question you'd get asked. And specifically, so yeah, so, the whole life insurance sector, right, which is a little bit different than the other type of, of companies um, out there. Our companies are typically mutual insurance companies. They are, because of the nature of being mutual, they are there to benefit the policy owners, right? Um, and not shareholders like stock companies. So that, that sector, speak to that specifically. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, you're, you're right. Because of my other, you know, stuff you are talking about, I'm very critical of what the Federal Reserve has been doing and so on. I, I do think that the economy is not in great shape. And so a lot of people who, um, that message resonates with, you know, they, so they're my fans, let's say, because of the Austrian economics and, you know, that sort of stuff. Then when they hear I'm into this infinite banking concept or IBC, which relies on the whole life, they say, yeah, they think that there's a contradiction. And they say, well, wait a minute, the economy is in such bad shape as you're saying, Murphy. Why do I want to give my money to these life insurance companies? Aren't they going to get wiped out too? Like, why don't I just buy bullets and bottled water and go live in the hills somewhere? And, and so, yeah, my, so, so one thing is that, yes, the, the life insurance sector, generally speaking, is very conservative, investing in investment-grade bonds and, you know, treasury and things like that. So pretty safe, conservative things. And so certainly if you're comparing it to a standard stock portfolio, I think it's, it's far more robust. You can, I'm, I'm probably I'm sure you've talked about this with your listeners, Teresa, that, for example, during the 1930s, Thousands of commercial banks went down, and lots of people turned to the cash value and their life insurance policy. So the life insurers, um, you know, they were they were on much more solid footing. Um, so I, I think there is that element. And then as you say, even within life insurance, so a standard plain vanilla whole life policy, as opposed to some of these things tied to the stock market, is you know much more robust in terms of you know the the, the performance, the risk is on the insurance company, not on the on the policyholder, and so on. So there's that element. And then, you know, you say, even if you push it further and look at mutual and mutual holding companies as opposed to standard stock companies, even with an old life insurance sector, you're right. The incentives are much better there because if you're a company that has to satisfy outside shareholders who are investing just for, you know, the, the, the profit, you know, the dividends and so on, then there's going to be some incentive for you to, to think more short term. Whereas if, the owners of the company are actually the policyholders, then there is no conflict there. And, you know, the people running the company and making day-to-day investment decisions 
it's not that they need to worry about their quarterly report so much to please the shareholders. You know, they can do what they think is in the long-term health of, of the uh, industry. So one little quick thing too, another question I get a lot is to say, hey, if there's a, you know, if there's a bond bubble and bond prices, uh, or sorry, if yields go up and bond prices collapse, you know, gee, life insurers, they have a bunch of bonds, isn't that going to be bad? And it's largely offsetting. Right, so if you just think of what the life insurance company's doing, they try to do maturity matching, right? So their assets and liabilities last for that, you know, because they're, you know, what, what are their liabilities? They're, there's life insurance policies, so when people die down the road, the life insurance company has to pay them the death benefit. So they have, you know, their actuaries can help estimate, you know, going forward in time, making projections and what are the payouts we're going to have to make to satisfy all these contracts. And then they try to buy bonds and match that up as best they can so that if they have a million dollars falling due in a certain month, they have a bond that's going to pay off a million dollars. It's not exact science, but you get the idea. And so that means when interest rates change, yes, the, the present value of their assets changes, but the present value of their liabilities also changes in the same direction. So my point in going through all that is just to make your listeners realize it's not as if a life insurance company is just a bond portfolio manager, right? It's a life insurance company, and so that's why changes in interest rates don't hurt them or help them as much as it might for the standard bond manager. Well, and, you know, I've got clients who have a significant bond portfolio where they're taking the entire risk. And, you know, a way I like to describe it is – to piggyback on what you're saying, the insurance companies get paid premiums. They have dollars coming in every single day. <clears throat> so they can be much more diversified than any individual bond portfolio. And when you've got a bond portfolio, yeah. you just have that bond portfolio. You don't have all the other guarantees and benefits that the insurance gives you with your policy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, when I got into this, IBC stuff was learning, learning more about it. My, my friend at the time asked me, you know, one of them, he, he said, well, if this is right, like, why can't I just go research what the life insurance company is investing in? Why don't I just go invest in that? And, you know, it's a reasonable question, but like you said, there's, there's lots of reasons for each of it. You're much better off sort of like participating in what this bigger entity is doing. For new, yeah, so for one thing, like you say, they can be more diversified, right? Just, they actually have much more capital to work with and so if you're just in sense, piggybacking along with what they're doing you have access to more options than if you just try to do it yourself and then another thing too is it's, it's life insurance right if you were just doing it on your own you wouldn't have the best benefit coverage so yes you could be mimicking what they would be the assets they would be buying with your premium payments if you want to think of it like that but if you happen to die of a heart attack two weeks into it all you have was you know the, the value of the couple contributions just made. You wouldn't get the full death benefit the way you do if you're buying a life insurance policy. So you, you wouldn't have that, that coverage. And then two, the ability to borrow against it, which is the, you know, the whole premise of the, the bank concept, you know, or the banking concept that you're, you're getting your own cash flows using the cash value as collateral. There, it would be much more difficult to do, right? Like you could have a bond portfolio on your own and go to a commercial bank and show them what you own and say, hey, can I borrow against this? But then there's all sorts of problems there where they're going to want to see a proof of income and so on before they would lend you money based on where there's a life insurance company because they're the ones guaranteeing the collateral. They don't do a credit check. You know, they just give you the money. So there's there's lots of reasons that using whole life to, quote, bank, the way Nelson Nash talked about or the way they talk about banking on yourself, did that you can't do that trying to do it on your own. Right? You have to do it via a whole life policy. Everything you've said so true, right? And so it's safe. It's predictable. Um, there are guarantees. It's self-completing with the death benefit. And, you know, I speak a lot about um, what happened uh, after the 70s, you know, in the 80s when the uh, Wall Street and corporate America shifted the responsibility of 
planning for retirement and saving for retirement to the employees, right? Because from a demographic perspective, corporate America was saying, was looking at the baby boomers going, you know, this is going to eat away at our profits. How can we transfer that responsibility to the employee to plan for their retirement? And the insurance industry did the same thing. They shifted the guarantees in the whole life insurance policies to a different type of life insurance, which is the universal life, onto the owner of that policy. So they've got all the risk. But speaking to savings um, habits, so to speak, and the use of whole life policies, it was used and very, very popular for decades before the 70s and before the shift in, I say, Madison Avenue um, influence, right? Getting people to believe that whole life insurance is a demon, right? It's awful. It's terrible. But so many millions of people saved tons of money and they had a lot more safety, security. They weren't chasing the shiny objects around um, all these different financial um, schemes, so to speak. Right. And um, and so, yeah, again, I'm guessing your listeners are pretty well aware of these distinctions, but yes, that's one of the problems I encounter when tell someone for the first time about these sorts of ideas that, um, that for example, my, my dad even was, was reluctant in the beginning because he was saying, oh, I had a bad experience. And it turned out somebody had sold a universal life policy, you know, decades ago, and it didn't work out well. <laughs> so I was trying to explain a number of times about the whole life policy, and they're different things. So, yes, the, the risk is entirely on the insurer side of things of the whole life policy, but it's all built in with guarantees for the client. But, but you're right, Teresa, and this is a classic example of where the government screws things up and then it's, it's blamed on something else. So what happened was in the, in the early 1970s, Richard Nixon takes the, you know, the dollar off the gold standard formally and that untied the Fed's hands. And so then that's what led to the increasing price inflation of the 70s, you know, the double digit inflation by, by the end of the decade. And so in that environment, people who had you know, plain vanilla whole life insurance policies that were had been issued earlier, you know, they, the, the guaranteed increase in cash value didn't look so attractive in an environment where now prices were rising a lot more rapidly than people had thought was going to happen. And so that was the, the way that, you know, Ralph Nader and people like that went around. There was an FTC report that came up going around just showing, oh, look at how bad these whole life policies are performing when you know, if, if policies had been the same, the like, government policy and monetary policy had been the same as when they were issued, that things would have been fine. It was just there was this brief transition period where price inflation was, was much higher than people had thought it would be because of this change in government policy. And so, in that environment, yeah, it looked like you were a sucker if you were sitting there with your standard whole life policy. And so, people got into you know more newfangled things where. It was more responsive to short-term changes, but then the problem was if interest rates came back down, then you were dead in the water, and that's exactly what happened. As you say, a lot of people got got out of their old, their you know, their boring, clean vanilla whole, whole life policy and got into these new UL policies when interest rates were really high, and they were shown calculations like, hey, if you just keep doing this, we'll be great. But then when interest rates came back down in the, in the mid-80s, all of a sudden those UL policies weren't performing very well. It's just when people weren't watching that and staying on top of it, they would get a call from the insurance company down the road saying, hey, you know, your policy is cannibalized and stuff. You need to kick in a bunch of money to keep this thing going. And they were shocked to hear that because they hadn't been watching it. Whereas, again, with a whole life policy, if you want it to, you can just stick it in the drawer and forget about it, and you know, it's not going to eat itself. Well, and it was a, a short-term burp, right, and with the performance of the whole life, and they weren't looking at the bigger picture. And you know, it didn't speak to the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and all the money that people had in whole life insurance. That was part of their savings plan. And there was a lot more financial security. People felt safe around about their money. And maybe because there were there weren't as as many, um, I don't know, I call them investment schemes out there, right? There weren't as many shiny objects, but it worked. It worked very, very well, and it worked for a lot of people. And our designs today, how we design our policies are so much more efficient 
from the perspective of the immediate cash value that people have in their policies. Because back then they didn't have policy designs or the ability to design the policies like we do today. And can I ask, just go back to something you said a minute ago? Um, sure. Underscore that yes, um, it, what's interesting in the United States, I can speak to is the yes, it, going well back. You can see, um, it actually Ludwig von Mises, the, the famous Austrian economist, and some as well. Once I learned about the infinite banking concept, I was seeing things in, in Mises' work that before it just totally passed my attention. I, you know, I missed it. But you, you know, just saying that people, when they, uh, like you, as you say, in the early, in the first half of the 20th century, it was fair. The way the average person would save is they would buy either, like, corporate bond, like, you know, railroad bonds, or, you know, some real staple utility or something, bonds from them, or have a genuine savings account, or just have life insurance, right? So that was, so that was considered a very standard, normal thing. And I also know that but part of what happened in the 1920s with all this speculation on Wall Street is average people started investing in stocks, and that was considered unusual at the time, right? That the idea that a regular person would invest in equities was, was considered uh, odd because that was supposed to be something that speculators did, right? You, you wouldn't save in the stock market. You would speculate in the stock market. And so... Whereas now, because again, because of the rent, I think particularly because of the inflation that was unleashed in the 70s, the average people think, oh, I'm being responsible and saving for my retirement by being in, you know, having my 401k and the S&P 500 or something. And, and, and that's a relatively new thing historically, that back in 1930 or something, or 1920, that would have been considered a very reckless thing to do. Like, you're putting your retirement into a bunch of stocks? Why would you do that, you know? But, but now, because people have lived through the inflation of the 70s, they think they have to be in something like the stock market. Otherwise, you know, they're, they're not going to keep up with inflation. So, again, just showing how government debasing the currency causes people to take on a lot more risk than historically they used to for something that, you know, you want to be safe like your retirement. Yes, there's this whole myth. I would, I would call it that you've got to chase risk in order to create wealth. And most people don't realize that their greatest financial need is spending. And if they just redirected how they made major purchases with their savings using a whole life insurance policy, they can create a whole lot of wealth without chasing that risk. And is there a place for risk? Absolutely. I'm, I'm certainly not one to say you should never invest in a stock or a mutual fund or in real estate or anything like that. You should absolutely, if you've got the means to do so. But Dr. Murphy, I know you see this all the time. People do not have a, a strong financial foundation. They're focused on all the fancy stuff and all the stuff at the top of a pyramid. And their foundation is a mess right? There are holes and cracks in their, in their concrete. Many people have no business chasing risk. They should pour the concrete, have a solid foundation. So the house that they build is solid and they know that it can weather the storms in the future and it's going to be there for a long, long time then you can get fancy with the curtains and the kitchen and everything else, right? Um, take care of your foundation. And I've never, and I've been working with money for over three decades. I know you've been around a long time too. Uh, not that that ages us uh, at all. We just started very young, right? Um, but don't you see this over and over again? If people would only take care of, you know, the basics first, yeah, I agree entirely. And to me, you know, that's it's um, it's really scandalous how in the United States, at least, I don't know how much this carries over in other countries, but people are just lectured to, you know, from a young age, oh, the responsible thing to do is just go ahead and let your employer take this chunk of your income out of each paycheck and go plunk it in this government qualified, you know, tax qualified plan, and then you your money's in prison and you can't touch it until you're in your 60s. 
And if you need the money earlier, you know, they just slap you. But it's, it's weird too when you look at the, at the conditions. If you wanted to do like a short-term loan or whatever, it's, it's I'm exaggerating here, but it's almost like they'll let you take the money out if you don't need it. But if you actually need it, then you can't get it. <laughs> so it's just really odd. And uh, and it's and, and so that's why then people when they have short-term financing needs and they have their money locked up and want to be you know claimed that the quote experts assure them of the smart thing to do with their money for their retirement, then they have to go and, and borrow from outside sources at exorbitant rates. Whereas the beauty, again, is something like, you know, the internet banking concept, you instead of, you know, have, like you say, the foundational element is the backbone of what you're doing. The starting point is a well-funded whole life policy designed in the proper way. You borrow against that. And you know, your money's right there for you when you need it. And you don't need it. You're not know, sitting there chugging along and it's nice and safe. If the stock market crashes, you're fine. You don't need to worry about it because you're not in the stock market there. And like you say, Teresa, once you, you plug that hole, you know, and you've got the death benefit there in case something happens to you, you know that your spouse and your kids are taken care of and so on. And you want to, you want to get fancy. You want to go and, and, and expose yourself to the stock market to try to get more returns for in exchange for, you can certainly do that. But what's, shocking to me just for how many Americans the backbone of their quote retirement planning is just having everything in the stock market in a vehicle that they can't touch for decades. Yes. When their number one need from a financial perspective is really spending. So the system is, and what I mean by that is just look at where your money, you've got to spend. I mean, we live in a material world, right? Um, it's just the way it is. And we buy cars and we buy houses and we buy pay for college education and pay for weddings and, you know, air conditioning and heating systems and roofs. I mean, we're spending money. See where your money goes every single month, every single year. Add it all up. It's a ton of money. But, you know, the system, and not to wear the tinfoil hat right now, but the system is set up to benefit who? The bankers. Because what happens when your money's tied up in a 401k or an IRA for 40 years, but you've got to buy a car or you've got to buy a home or you've got to improve you know, your roof um, or buy a new air conditioner? You're going to go to the finance company because all of your investing or savings is tied up in the stock market. And if you've got cash, you typically don't, you're not, we're not taught to have that much in reserve and that much in savings, which was Nelson's point all along, become your own banker, shift that spending and that financing to yourself instead of a third party. Yeah. And and, and partly too, again, like me, you sort of step back and realize, you know, he's got different examples in his book, but uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm slightly tweaking it, but the, the spirit of it being that your, you know, out of your paycheck money is getting withdrawn and then ultimately it's going to, you know, Wall Street, let's say, and then when you want to buy a, you know, a vehicle and you don't have the money for it, it's been taken out of your paycheck and you got to finance it. And so, it's, you know, some of these outside institutions might then be the ones financing it. So it's, it's weird. It's like you, that's <laughs> your, your money, you're giving it to these other people and then you're paying them to borrow it back and at a higher interest rate. And so he's again just showing, you know, get rid of the middleman and, and if you did it his way, it's, you know, it, it shows it makes much more sense. So that's the idea. In other words, if you, if you just literally had no assets whatsoever and you wanted to buy something, well then you had to borrow from somebody else. But the point being most Americans right now that they, they do have assets, but they've been put into this vehicle that they can't touch. And so now they feel like they're broke and so they have to borrow from somebody else and they're paying a higher interest rate to them. Then they're earning, you know, on the, on the assets that they had locked up because of this crazy system where it doesn't make any sense and everybody feels very insecure because this money that's been taken from them, you know, they don't have access to it. But yet, again, the experts assure them this is the smart thing to do. Everybody's doing this. Yeah, but we get paid the high commissions. Um, you know, every now and then I, I, I will, I will hear that from another advisor. Oh, you're doing, you know, this from a commission perspective. Um, actually, uh, no, because my commissions are much less if I had gone the other way, right. As a wealth advisor, um, as these policies mature, right. Um, if you have, if I have a client with a million dollars of cash value versus, 
a million dollars in a traditional 401k plan, that is advisor is making in one year, probably what I make, uh, what I made total. Right. Um, we talk about this. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. The comparison you just made is, is one I hadn't thought of. And that, that is an interesting apple to apple way of looking at it, but also too. Um, so yeah, it is true that a whole life policy, you know, gives a, a, com- a better commission to the agent servicing that than, you know, like a term policy, the same death benefit. But on the other hand, a policy designed to accumulate cash value it does not give as much of a commission to the agent. And so you know that if somebody's showing you the infinite banking concept and that's the way it's being presented, that's actually you're not the, the, the thing that the agent would be doing if all the person wants to do is maximize the commission. Right? So it's showing, no, this is something that's in the interest of the client and it's not in the immediate pecuniary interest of, of the agent it, it, to the extent that they're showing you how to build up cash value. That, that's one element of it. But also, too, as I point out to people, if they're concerned about that, they, you know, look, the, the illustrations you get and the thing that you sign and it goes into force, the contract with the life insurance company, that already has all the commissions built into those numbers, right? So, you know, it's not like there's this asterisk and you think, okay, this is what you're showing me and the performance might be, but now in practice we're going to take money out of the commission. Where in contrast, when you see stuff about, you know, oh, how the stock market did and you're wishing you in the market, no, if you had a money manager, you know, you know, some portfolio manager in there, they would be earning their fees off your account, and so you wouldn't be seeing the raw gains in the stock market. So, again, a lot of these comparisons are, are apples to oranges where you might see a presentation about what the raw rate of return was in the stock market compared to the increase in cash value in a whole life policy, but the average person is the kind of vehicle you're going to be in if you're in a 401k or something. You're not going to experience and enjoy that raw rate of return of the stock market when it has a good year because the institution managing that fund is going to take its cut. And so that's the kind of thing I mean where at least with the whole life policy illustration, the numbers you see are already taking into account the fact that the agent's going to get a commission off that. So what you see is what you get. Totally. It's, it, it is their numbers completely. And if I was personally, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I can say most of the people that talk about, you know, the infinite banking concept, bank on yourself, same, same concept, right? Just different branding. Um, they're not in it for the money. They're in it because from a philosophical perspective, they a thousand percent understand that this strategy is a strategy that everyone needs to, to implement. It's not a business, so to speak. The amount of energy and heart that goes into educating and turning on the light bulb for people, right? If, if we were in it for the money, there'd be a lot of other ways of making money in the financial industry and this is not the easiest way. In fact, I joke with people all the time that I sell the absolute hardest thing in the world to sell, right? It's a concept sale and it's whole life insurance demonized by, you know, everybody. And Madison Avenue, you know, spends, uh, the Wall Street spends billions of dollars through Madison Avenue, um, promoting everything but this, right? So in my next life, um, I might reconsider this whole life insurance thing, business. But no, actually, I'm incredibly, incredibly blessed that I uh, learned about this from Nelson. Uh, Bless his heart. Um, He's been an amazing mentor to both of us. And... um, you know, it was because of him, I was able to align my, my understanding, my philosophy of how money really worked with the strategy that I could bring to the marketplace, that I can bring value to clients that today, after all the years that I've been in this business, I get texts, I get emails, I get love from my clients. 
thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You opened up my eyes. I'm so glad I listened to you. I'm so glad I did this. I don't know where I'd be if I didn't do this. Um, and, and Dr. Murphy, I know you get a lot of love too from people that are saying thank you because your voice, you know, you've got that PhD, you're an economist, you know, you're a really smart, geeky guy, right? Um, you being a, a major voice out there for for us um, is really helpful, and I think you've made a major, major impact. Well, I appreciate those kind words, Teresa, and yeah, just to echo what you're saying, that, you know, so it's a Nelson Nash Institute where I'm a, a member of the board. You know, we interview people, candidates to go through the training program that we've established there, and yeah, the I would say nine out of ten applicants, they're there because you know, they read Nelson's book or they listened to our podcast or, and they're really moved and they, they want to be part of, of helping people. And I, and I know that sounds corny and cliched, but I mean, it, it really is the case. It, it's very rare that, that we'll get an applicant who you can tell they just, you know, oh, they're dabbling around. Oh, this looks like another thing I can add in my portfolio. And, and we don't let those people in. But that's their attitude. So it, it really is the case. And, and like you say, it, it, it makes sense because there is this stigma against whole life in the, you know, the outside financial world where people say, oh, are you kidding me? That's a terrible place to put your money, you know, that sort of thing. So by the process of selection, the type of people that go into this are going to be the true believers <laughs> because it is, uh, you know, something that has this stigma and it takes a while to get someone to understand how it works. And, yeah, if, if you didn't really believe in it and think it was it was helpful, you just go do something else. You, you know, you, you can make your money a different way that's not such a, such a time-consuming process. I, a, there are a lot easier ways to make a living than uh than educating people on the benefits of whole life insurance uh and you know kudos to the nelson nash institute i became i think one of the first that were um certified and um it was that course kicked my butt it it was it was a tough process to go through and um I had been, I don't know, in the industry working, working with this strategy for a long time. So it, and, and you, I know, were a part of creating that curriculum and it just forced you to learn these concepts at a much deeper level. So kudos to you on that as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, and that was just part of my own evolution. As I said to you before, when you're asking how I got into it. Yeah, you know, there I was a PhD economist you know, from the academic side of things, and at first I didn't understand what Nelson was talking about. And then I I got it, and I sort of like reconstructed it from an economic perspective, so I could understand it, you know, given my background. And then you know that that's part of what's in the training program. Yeah, you know, we're, we're sort of like opening the hood up and showing people this is how these these policies work from an you know an actuarial perspective. This is the mechanics of it. Because again, it's, it's not rocket science, but it is an unusual thing at first. And, and when you understand how it works, it makes perfect sense. And a lot of things like, you know, how, how can they, what is the cash value? And, and why couldn't you just do IBC, you know, on a house or something using a home equity loan? And, and you realize, no, well, no, because the nature of the collateral is different. You know, the life insurance company doesn't need to do a credit check. They're guaranteeing the collateral, whereas the bank isn't guaranteeing the value of your house. And so that's why... They wouldn't just lend you money without checking on it, you know, that kind of stuff. So once you understand the bedrock foundations of it, it all makes perfect sense, but it does take some investigation and a little bit of a thought just to get to that level of understanding. Well, any, any closing words, Dr. Murphy? This has been great. So appreciate you coming on Living Wealthy Radio. I think this is maybe the second or third interview we've done over the years. So uh, it had it had been some time. It was about time you came back on. Well, thanks for having me. And I would just encourage any of your listeners, you know, who maybe haven't taken the step yet, you're intrigued. I mean, I'm, I am concerned about the state of the economy, all the things the Fed not changing policies, you know, switching course. So, I, yeah, I would encourage you to, to reach out to Teresa to, if you haven't done so and you're just on the fence. Because uh, I, I am not very confident about what the future holds and being in one of these properly designed whole life policies is a very uh, very safe place to be. And if anyone's interested in your consulting, your website is consulting by RPM, 
which are your initials, Robert P. Murphy, right? RPM. And yep. we will certainly post your contact information on the podcast listing on Living Wealthy Radio. And Dr. Murphy, I look forward to seeing you in the near future and uh, having you back on Living Wealthy Radio. Thanks for having me, Teresa. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.